Welcome to the Off Street Podcast featuring Adam Reiner and Sean Dan. Off Street contains general information that is not suitable for everyone and contains certain forward-looking statements of future possibilities that due to known and unknown risks and other uncertainties and factors may differ materially from actual results. As such, there is no guarantee that any views and opinions expressed herein will come to pass. Off Street is presented for informational purposes and nothing contained herein should be construed as a solicitation to buy or sell any security or as an offer to provide investment, tax, or legal advice. Additionally, this communication contains information derived from third-party sources. Although we believe these sources to be reliable, we make no representations as to their accuracy or completeness. Adam and Sean are employees of Marshall Financial Group, Inc., a registered investment advisor. For additional information about the firm, including its services and fees, send for the firm's disclosure brochure or visit advisorinfo.sec.gov. All right, Sean, it is Tuesday, October 10th, 2.45 in the afternoon. Disappointing day today for Philadelphia. It's been an interesting day. It's been an emotional day. We've, there's, it's had its ups and downs. I think we've gone through different stages of hope and excitement. I think we've just gone through all the stages at this point. Despair. <laughs> despondency this morning. For those unaware of what we're talking about, our beloved Phillies lost a heartbreaker in Game 2 to the Atlanta Braves last night. Had the game all but wrapped up. A couple shaky innings. The next thing you know, lose 5-4. On Friday when we left the office, we were both on the same page. Leave Atlanta. 1-1. It's, it's a success story. But, you know, they won the first game, probably a game they shouldn't have won, then lost the second game. Game they seemingly had in hand. Four outs away. During this pivotal part in the eighth inning, we were on this message from someone in the office. And I saw this alert come through. I'm watching the game on Hulu Live. So sometimes we're a couple seconds behind people, and they, they like the message when key things happen. Yeah. Like, it happened with the, the Trey Turner play mm-hmm. in game one when you had sent me a message. Oh, So right. I knew something something big happens. Good to know. <laughs> and so I see this message come through, and that's me and you on this message string. And I'm like, oh, man, they blew it. And then Braves hit the home run. I open the message, and it has nothing to do with the baseball game. <laughs> it's a picture of a cookie. Cookies, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was it was a great cookie. The cookie was phenomenal. Phenomenal cookie, 10 a, out of 10. A peanut butter chocolate chip cookie. Big, big guys. Like If you sold them at a, a bakery, it's probably like a $7 cookie. But So he came in this morning. I said, did you send that message because we're going to be emotional eating today? And he said, oh, no. I, he was behind on the game. He didn't even <laughs> see the home run yet. The comedic timing was impeccable. Ugh. It was hilarious. I laughed out loud. Like, for as sad <laughs> as that moment was, I had the same thing. I'm get, All the text messages I'm getting during the game is about the game. And at the most pivotal moment, get a picture of just a cookie on a tray. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> but like you said, I think, we, I think we're out of the funk. We, like, had a quick vent session this morning. I think we're back. We're excited for, for game three tomorrow. Talk, talked ourselves into it. <laughs> <laughs> but it is funny you bring up cookies, though. Because I guess kind of br- trying to bring it back to finance <laughs> companies' ears, you know, keep on, on track. Are you familiar with the company Crumble Cookies? Yes. C-R-U-M-B-L, Crumble. Crumble. I think I think there's one. I think there's one in Warren. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Never been. So I'm not super familiar with Crumble. I've only had it a few times. I know generally when you order cookies, I think they have like flavors of the week. And it usually comes in a box of four. They're pretty big cookies, like probably comparable to what we had this morning. Probably one that you like. You wouldn't necessarily eat a full one in one sitting, but you could do it if you wanted to. I ate that full cookie this morning in one oh, sitting. I crushed it. Yeah, same. At 9 a.m., 8.30 a.m., whatever we're eating <laughs> it. But the, the, it's a pretty solid-sized cookie, a lot of toppings. 
And someone pulled up an advertisement that they had posted this week for their cookies. And next to each cookie on the advertisement, they had listed the calorie amount. And for one of them, it was 200. For one of them, it was 250. And someone posted and said, this is criminal, false advertisement. And I was like, uh-oh, like, what's going on here? It turns out the numbers that they publish for calories, fat, all that stuff is per fourth of a cookie. Oh, my goodness. So in that single box that I've gotten before as a gift, I've, I've given as a gift, is technically 16 servings. Adam, I've crushed full cookies, <laughs> one and a half cookies multiple times. Lo and behold, I'm eating a full day's worth of my calories, three days worth of saturated oh. fats. I feel gross now. I've been eating a cookie if you, forever. If you eat them all in one shot, only, only so many calories can stick at one time, right? They, they roll off. <laughs> we'll, go, we'll go with that theory. They pass through the system. They, without. Through, they, can't, they can't stick. <laughs> but anyways, and for anyone who uh, also enjoys crumble cookies, just, just so you're aware, PSA. I remember crumble cookies from the spring. Wasn't Tobias Harris that said Sixers fans would trade me for a crumble, crumble cookie? cookie? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no easy transition here, Sean. We're just going to pivot hard to All market right, talk, right? <laughs> so interesting week last week for markets. We saw saw yields rise. Uh, 10-year Treasury yields hit 16 years high, 16-year highs, uh, partially driven by labor market data that had come out. On Friday, we got some more labor market data. Payroll growth coming well above consensus. Almost makes you wonder, like, what's the point of economists even trying to estimate that number at this point? When I think the economist estimate was, what, 170, 180,000, and it came in over 300. Yeah. So at the point of view, good or bad. Good if you want the economy to be strong. Bad if you're trying to see it moderate somewhat for, for rates. But wage growth came in below consensus. So it was kind of, in the end... A good number, possibly a good number for the Fed. We had sh- strong labor market, but not too strong that it caused wage inflation that could translate to, to other inflation. So kind of good and bad there. It was it was a weird week economic release wise. I think we had three different job centric numbers that you could look at last week. And we talked about it in the Wealth IQ that came out Friday. One was kind of too hot. One was too cold and one was just right to use the right. Goldilocks analogy. So you really could choose whichever one you want to make your story. We saw yields pop, maybe some capitulation there of like the last push. So it, it was a weird week last week for sure. Yeah, and as yields fluctuate, we'll continue to see stocks oscillate back and forth with yields. Um, today just so happens to be a yield down day. I think the last I saw, 10-year yields were down 15 basis points. So we're getting a little lift in equities, just everything trying to reprice financial conditions right now. Um, there is a CPI report this week. Um, it's expected to show that inflation... It's going to moderate somewhat from the increase that we saw saw last month. Just like to remind people of this number we're getting in October is September inflation. Yeah, to talk about CPI a little bit, we talked about a few weeks ago how it's nice that the Fed days don't seem as, as big of an event. It's nice yeah. too. Like CPI is coming up this week. There hasn't been a ton of chatter. Before it'd be two weeks out. It's all I don't want to talk about is what's CPI coming. So maybe, you know, good normalization sign there. Yeah, even with the Fed meeting, next Fed meeting on November 1st, um, Fed could be less focused on this CPI print compared to the other prints leading up to their meeting. Just with yields rising so much, some people are speculating that that may have done some of the lifting for the Fed. I know this afternoon at lunch, Nick Timorous, the unofficial Fed reporter, or the official Fed reporter of the Wall Street Journal, but the unofficial Fed spokesman, leaker of information yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, published a piece and it said higher bond yields likely to extend fed pause officials are signaling that a run-up in a long-term interest rates might substitute for further central bank rate hikes which has been a lot of the fed speaks really since friday yeah 
if the Fed wants tighter conditions, yields going higher, stocks coming in the past really almost two months at this point, it kind of does the lifting for them. And there probably has to be some point of inflection that the Fed doesn't want yields to get too, too far high. away yeah. from them. Yeah. But I think point is market narratives can shift quickly. And at times, financial media can be very confusing at best for, for consumers. There could be various economic stories, bond market stories, equity stories. And within the same day or matter of days, you can get something that says something very positive and something very negative. I mean, it's confusing for us. For someone who's not keeping tabs on it every second of every day, it's got to be almost completely overwhelming. And especially at a time like this, the start of the year outside of, of the SVB collapse, if stocks did well, we started trending in the right direction, people were on the same page. And all of a sudden now we have two shaky months of stock market performance. Now it seems like everyone's looking every which way. So we noticed just this week, something we talk about all the time, but I think it was really apparent this week, is competing headlines all over, really anywhere you look. Yeah, so we just pulled, pulled a sampling. Here's, here's one headline. This would be be bullish. September is over. It's time to buy stocks. This was a, a Barron's piece. And then the very same day, there was another piece published by Yahoo Finance that said, why stocks may just roll into an October correction. So depending on which piece you read, and maybe a little bit towards your own personal bias and belief of the market, you can find something that fits that narrative. Yeah. Two super reputable, very trusted outlets to opposing theses. And it doesn't stop there, Sean. Same thing in fixed income market. Yields are kind of all over right now. So this one being the bear headline, we're in the biggest treasury bond bear market ever, Bank of America says. And then the bull headline from Market Watch, treasury yields are climbing. There's never really been such an attractive opportunity for fixed income investments. And that was from Janice Henderson, right? Yes, in a, in a Market Watch article. I believe that was Janice Henderson that, that gave that market call. The last one here, I know you'll like as you're a millennial, right? I am a millennial. From Fortune, millennials are so worried about their finances that they're falling into a depression. On the same hand, from Bloomberg, this is a, a Vanguard report reported by Bloomberg, older millennials on track to retire more comfortably than late boomers. So there you go. <laughs> but like <laughs> you said, perfect I, sense. I think each one of those, like, yeah, depending on your bias, depending on the point you want to make, there probably is a case to make. And like everything in finance, nothing's black and white. Maybe it's like 60-40. Maybe you lean one way. But it's stressful to read all those headlines if you can't then take a step back and say, I can hold these two ideas in my mind at the same time and don't have to act on either. Very true. It's sometimes a lot of access to information. You just get so much you're not sure what to do. It's with not it. necessarily always a good thing. Yeah. Which while when we were in Arizona, we had the opportunity to speak with Caleb Silver who is the editor-in-chief at Investopedia. Like we were very excited to speak with Caleb, very well-known in the finance industry. Uh, Caleb is an Emmy-nominated business journalist, and you can often see him on CNBC or Yahoo Finance or other forms of financial media. Just given Caleb's role, we sat down with him and asked him to provide some more perspective on what goes into financial media. How do they decide what articles to write? How do they come up with sources? Yeah, uh, how the sausage is made conversation. But yeah, really gripping conversation, really interesting stuff. I think we learned a lot. Hopefully you'll learn a lot of kind of how financial media makes it from event to published story. So 
we will play that interview now. All right, we are joined today by Caleb Silver, Editor-in-Chief at Investopedia. Caleb is an Emmy-nominated business journalist, and you may recognize him from his guest appearances on CNBC, Yahoo Finance, amongst others. Caleb, th- thanks for joining us. Good to be here. Yeah, we were... Uh... We talked about before the podcast this morning, we were getting together, making our notes, is which one of us was going to rap, because we know you. Yeah. You always intro with a freestyle. I, I would have written one for you had I known <laughs> that you were so we interested, would. but I'll come back with one for you. Yes. Neither of us had the courage to do it. Yeah. Big Again, on it's not courage, it's total chutzpah, and uh, I don't recommend it. We saw on your socials that you describe yourself as a taco truck explorer. Any favorite spots here in Phoenix? No, but I did have some very good uh, tacos, and I'm going to blow the name, but it was uh, it was over there on Washington Street, and they were off the chain. I'll come up with the name in a minute. So I've tried those. I may try another spot on my way out to the airport. Usually I make my Uber stop at the best taco stand in town and grab a couple for the road. Right. Nice. I had saw the news yesterday that Phoenix was ranked third on the top 15 taco towns in America. Who by, took first, Los Angeles? Yelp. Don't remember. I think it may have been in Nevada. Oh, okay, okay, okay. It's competitive out there. But the food industry loves articles with the list. So does the finance industry, be it the best fill-in-the-blank or top five things you should be doing with your money. Um, in your role as editor-in-chief at Investopedia, you have a lot of influence over the content that's produced and published. Could you give our listeners an inside look into what that process looks like, kind of how the sausage is made? Yeah. Absolutely. Investopedia is very unique. It's in a very unique space that it's been in for the last 24 years. We're going to be 25 next year. In internet years, that's 250. (laughs) We have been around a long time. And what do we do? We answer people's questions. And that question could be, uh, what does this mean? What does price to earnings ratio mean? Or it could be something like, how do I invest $10,000? Now, the answer for you and for me is very different. But our job is to really answer those questions as best as we can, have the best answer on the internet so that you are actually making a more informed decision. We're trying to be the educated investor and help educate people that want to learn about how this process works so they can make it a lifelong journey versus stock picking or rattling off every tick of the market. We do a lot of news, but the angle we try to do in news is what's the educated investor need to think about this conceptually to help them make a better decision? And then, of course, we have a about 20,000 dictionary terms that we've had for the last 24 years. I think Investopedia is a great resource, uh, even for us being in the industry, that Sean and I may be speaking with clients and using industry jargon. That's just normal. It's part of our, our day-to-day lexicon. And sometimes clients will Google, what does this mean? What's, what's PE ratio? And usually one of the first things that pops up is Investopedia and gives a very concise answer on what Sean and I are trying to communicate. Good. Mission accomplished. But it's, you know, it's competitive out there. And again, just devoting ourselves to pure education and staying in that lane makes it, I'm not going to say easy, but simple for us to say, what should we be doing content on and about? And what is our angle? We're not trying to beat anybody with an earnings report. We're not trying to beat anybody with news. We're trying to say, here's how you need to think about it. And then also be very tuned into what people are searching for, both seasonally because it changes. Tax season, you know, people start looking up tax stuff right around November, December, not March, April, a lot of people think. Also, when is back to school? What are people thinking about then? When's the home buying season? So having content that's seasonally ready and also paying attention to what people are searching for and trying to get, like Wayne Gretzky says, to where the puck is going instead of chasing news all day long. 
Yeah. And so Investopedia, obviously very respected when it comes to that pure knowledge bank of those dictionary terms. How do you balance when you do more of the event-based stories? Stay gripping and entertaining, but keep it about what it actually is. Don't try and over-dramatize current events. Yeah. Let, let me give you an example and like the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. That's a real humdinger. Actually, no, it's a high profile thing and a lot of Absolutely. investors care because people care about Charlie and Warren and I'm a big fan of them. So, you know, we could do the TikTok of the meeting and what they said and who said what and that's not that interesting for our readers who are trying to just stay smart. What are the three most important takeaways I need to know? How much cash on hand? Are they looking to do big deals? Where do they get, you know, what do they think about the insurance business and risk right now? Or we pick the things that we think the educated investor needs to know versus Charlie said that, Warren said that, uh, they may have had a good laugh about this or that, or um, you take something else like an earnings report. Again, we're not going to do the blow-by-blow and what the estimate was and what the beat was. We may list that. What are the most important things you need to know? Let's take Amazon, for example. How is Amazon making money? What parts of its business are growing the fastest? Is it web services? Is it it, uh, the e-commerce part? So we're trying to find what you need to think about in order for you to make a decision whether or not you want to be an investor or just as you follow the company. Uh, yesterday we had spoke with Brian Walsh, who's the director of advice and planning at SoFi, and he had some great research on financial influencers and the impact of both positive and negative on financial behavior. So just in your opinion, how do you see that space and financial media in general progressing? Yeah, well, it's wide open, and we've seen some really big and important voices come to the fore just really since the pandemic, and I'm really happy about that. I'm talking about Rashad Bilal and Troy Millings that are in your leisure. I would call them financial influencers or finfluencers. I just made up that term. Feel free to use it. Feel free to use it. So you have that where they're talking about wealth building and trying to help their community think about wealth building and investing. And then you have, as always, in when you have a, a sort of an explosion of new media and, and new personalities, you have a lot of snake oil salespeople, and that's what you should expect. As an investor, as someone who cares about your money, be very careful about who you follow and the advice you're following because there's a lot of quick buck artists like there are in every era going back to tulip mania going back to the shells you know when we were trading shells uh, back in the day there's always going to be the people that'll tell you how to do it quickly and how to get there fastest and usually that doesn't work out in the long run for most people so think about how you want to build your wealth and how you want to grow your educational acumen over time and follow those people because there's plenty of them out there so in your role now and in the past You've had the chance to interview a lot of very interesting people. We sat in on your session yesterday with Chris Gardner from Pursuit of Happiness. Saw it, you were with Jay Williams out of Future Proof. Are there any that stand out as maybe the most fun interview or the most impactful or the one you're most proud of? Yeah, well, in the investing world, I've had a lot of good fortune to interview some of the best, Warren Buffett included, and I love speaking to him. And Charlie Munger, I think I may be a bigger Charlie fan than a Warren fan, although I love them both. Um, plain spoken you know, right from the heart and, and thoughtful answers. So those are, you know, those are the goats and those are going to be in the Hall of Fame. But I've also had the opportunity to speak to investors all over the world about how to think about money, how they're educating people about money. But on the celebrity side, sort of celebrity business side, I think my favorite interview is Jay-Z. Yeah. And I've been able to do that a couple of times. Why? Because he uh, is a business man, not a businessman. But not only that, when he walks in the room, you'd expect him to walk in with like five or six people and be very protected. Not at all. He comes in by himself, shakes everybody's hand, the sound operator, the camera operator, the producer, the reporter, and then he will sit for you as long as you want and talk to you really from the heart and talk about really the process. And the process is so important in any business because 
You know, he's not one of those people that thinks you can make a hit record and just take it from there. He's never done that. He's always built to the next level. So I love those conversations. That's been my, uh, one of my favorite interviews of all time. But I've had a lot of good fortune in my career. I, I helped produce an interview with the Dalai Lama, with a couple of uh, ex-presidents of the United States. So I've, I've had a good uh, run of interviewing some very famous people, but also people nobody's ever heard of that gave me some of the best conversations I've ever had. Bringing it back to the, the social media side, throughout your career, many platforms have come and gone. New ones always seem to pop up, different ways to connect with readers and listeners. So how have you chosen what to adopt and how to best utilize them? Yeah, well, I got into Twitter and FinTwit early. Um, in the early days when there was really the extension of the, the, the blog. Uh, you guys are way too young to know this, but back in the day, sort of the original Finn bloggers like Barry Ritholtz and others were writing about investing, were writing about trading, were writing about the markets outside of the journal, Barron's, Bloomberg, where I used to work, CNN Money, where I used to work, in a voice that was much more human. And a lot of them moved on to Twitter and stock twit. So I'm a big Finn twit guy still, and I learn a lot from that. It's about who you follow, not about what you scroll through, but about who you're paying attention to. So that's been a big deal for me, and I can't lie, uh, Instagram has been big, just in the ability for me to express myself. I call my podcast The Express, but the ability to express myself. I'm a big skateboarder, a longboarder, I love it. And I spend a lot of time on that board, traveling from place to place, TV studio to work to meetings. But I'm thinking about money, and I'm thinking about investing, and I'm thinking about my audience. So I record a lot of stuff on Instagram using that. It ends up on TikTok. TikTok so any place where we are sort of making a, uh, some noise about being the educated investor and helping people do that has been good for me. And the visual platforms are good, even though I have a great face for radio. Um, Insta and TikTok have been very, really valuable for me. It's awesome. And in that kind of thin twit space, it seems like you and, and a lot of these personalities, you're always on top of trends. When AI comes along, you, Investopedia, all these outlets do a really good job of having experts on hand ready, ready to talk about it. I even think like ChatGBT, when that blew onto the scene earlier this year, there's always quality content that was very informative, ready to go. Sure, a lot of smart people out there. What's your process there? How do you stay on top? Is it just staying connected with a lot of people? Yeah, so I'm in this business 28 years, excuse me, <laughs> 28 years or so. So it's been about building that network of people to follow. And, you know, I, I for one, like I'm an art major. I came out of the restaurant business. I have no business being the editor-in-chief of Investopedia, except I have made it my business to be that person in those 28 years. But I've built a, a really good network of people that I follow. Not only that, I get research reports from companies that I, uh, and research institutions or analysts or investors or just writers on the market that I subscribe to. And I have a podcast, you know, uh, 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 rotation going on where there are kind of these voices and some of them are really iconoclastic to who I am, but I know I'll learn by listening to them or reading their stuff. So I take in a lot of information. I get up early. I do a big read-in. That's kind of part of my process and exercise and the whole morning routine is like getting it all in there. And then I kind of follow and, and I have media on throughout the day as I work, you know, kind of have some business network on or I'm listening to a pod while I'm doing my own work and it kind of keeps inspiring me. And it's those little things that drop into your head sometimes that you never forget I end up repeating out there in the world I sound smart because I've been listening to smart people. Sean and I are kind of the same way we have Bloomberg on in the background while we work and some people will come into our office and ask isn't that distracting and and no because sometimes we'll hear just like a tidbit of information that we'll either dive deeper into and explore it more and or the crawl you know I, I worked at Bloomberg in the early days when we were developing what to put on the screen and how to depict things and 
how to use lower thirds, those are those graphics effectively, because most people are like us. They have it on, but they're kind of doing something else. It's on the gym, it's at the bar, it's in the airport, or you're working and you have it on, it's in your trading floor or in your office, and suddenly you'll catch something. I get a lot of good ideas that way, believe it or not. I have a lot of good friends in that business too. So sometimes I see them on, I like to cheer them on as well. So it becomes part of my little ecosystem. When you're preparing for interviews, like Jay-Z to the Dalai Lama, is that process generally the same or does it change depending on who you're interviewing? Yeah, I mean, I do what a lot of us do, which is I read the most recent things that they've said. Okay. Right? But um, for me, I don't want to do the same interview that you are going to do with those people or anybody else is going to do with those, inter those people, unless it's on a topic that is burning down the house right now. So, you know, when I'm talking about AI and the impact and financial services, that's a very distinct angle. I'm not going to be original to that, but I want to make sure my audience understands that. That said, um, you know, I was talking to Chris Gardner yesterday here at the FPA, and, you know, a lot of what we know about Chris is through the movie, The Pursuit of Happiness. Well, the book is much more deep than the movie, like it always is. And what Chris told us yesterday, which I thought was fascinating, was in the movie, his son, played by uh, um, Jaden Smith, uh, he's about eight or nine years old in the movie. But in real life, his son, Chris's son, was 14 months old while Chris was sleeping in the train stations and in the bathrooms and trying to make it work. That's much more intense. Um, you know, and a big part of the movie is when, you know, he sees the red Ferrari and makes the decision that he wants to become rich like that. Well, it wasn't the Ferrari, but what was it behind that, right? What's the story behind that? I like to do also history on people's backgrounds, their hometowns, to see if there's any through lines that we can talk about. And I think you know this well. People appreciate it, like you guys did, when you prepare for the interview and you kind of know, you get inside their mind a little bit and you get inside their world and they're like, oh, you actually paid attention? Those are the best conversations. Just one, one last question for you before we let you go. You obviously have a very influential position, editor-in-chief at Investopedia. People want to know what you have to say on Twitter, Instagram, etc. How do you approach that responsibility? And what kind of legacy, what kind of impact do you want to leave? That's a great question. So a lot of gratitude, a lot of reciprocity, a lot of shining the light on other people is something that I found works for me. I don't put, you know, especially on the Twitters, it's not about me and my kids or me living my best life, playing golf in some awesome place, which I would love to be doing <laughs> almost all the time. I don't think that's right, right? I use it as an educational platform. I use it to highlight the work that we're doing, like our, our bi-monthly investor sentiment survey or, um, you know, the terms of the year or whatever people are, are talking about, whatever we're trying to feature. I also do a lot of media appearances. A lot of those get put on social media and they get put out and people talk, you know, they, people are tagging me. I just throw it back with gratitude at them or I'll see friends of mine or people I respect in the industry doing something cool and I like to highlight that, right? For me, it's about shining the light on other people, sharing gratitude for the platform that I have and then using it to amplify what I believe is my job, which, which is to educate people about money. And I'll tell you what, guys, you're young in your career, but to have a job where you're, it is your responsibility to educate people about money. Great responsibility, huge honor, and a ton of fun. Absolutely. Yeah, agree well, 100%. Well, said. well, thanks for joining us. Uh, you can check out Caleb and his, his thoughts at Investopedia.com and his podcast, uh, Investopedia Express. Thanks for having me. So that was our interview with Caleb Silver, Editor-in-Chief at Investopedia. If you enjoyed the conversation and want to learn more about Caleb, like we said, you can find him at Investopedia. He also has a very uh, popular Twitter page where he shares a lot of his views, really all of his socials, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and we encourage you to check each of those out. Yeah, very appreciative of Caleb sitting down with us while we were in Phoenix. Yes. Would you like to end the show with On Correlated, Sean? Let's do it. So this first story 
there is no theme to this on Correlated, by the way, which is which is a first <laughs> or one of the first times. I'm sure if we worked hard enough, we could have could have threaded a needle, but no need to force it. Yes, no no clear theme here. Um, this comes from this article comes from the Wall Street Journal. And its title is The Latest Trend in Your Work Wardrobe Stinks. Performance fabrics move from workout gear to business attire with some odorous downsides. And as the headline indicates, what was once popular in workout clothes has made their way over to polos, button-ups, and suits. Um, Though those synthetic fibers can repel water, they can trap sweat and oil and build up in the fabric and and just cause general stink sean yeah kind of gross i didn't and something i didn't really know they talk about how uh those man-made fibers like you talked about the polyester spandex etc while good for workout clothes because they don't trap that moisture against you you don't get like soaked in sweat they're meant for workout clothes because generally when you work out you sweat quickly you put it in the wash and you shower yourself off when you're wearing a suit for 10 12 hours a day yes it it wicks away the sweat but those oils and odors i guess build up kind of kind of gross <laughs> kind of gross so they had interviewed someone with in the article who had said they'd gone to i think a cigar bar and the, the fibers just soaked in the cigar smell not getting it out which is just like it, you can smell it when you it's read it disgusting. in the article yeah dermatologists say um they're seeing a jump in sweat acne also um, gross which is Brutal. caused by yeast <laughs> that lives on your skin and invades our pores when we perspire not fun Down, downside there though i do love the idea of the performance fabric suit it sounds like something that should work <laughs> It, well, it's interesting, too, because it sounds like when this, according to the article, when they kind of started working more than these synthetic materials, it was it seemed like a win-win because it's cheaper, it's easier to care for, generally wrinkle-free, so you can just throw it in the dryer, take it out, and wear it without having to iron it. And often it looks better because if it's a tighter, tighter fit. But I guess with everything, there are drawbacks. And someone at the end of the article that they interviewed questions, you know, have we over-optimized the shirt? did we go too far (laughs) i'd say no (laughs) (laughs) i get it of like if if a cotton shirt works just fine you know maybe we push the limits now we got just like a stinky shirt well in the article procter and gamble said they have upgraded some of their detergents and introduced new products that can strip away odors and residue that builds up on the synthetic clothes so maybe maybe everything just has at the same point of the, the evolutionary cycle. Yeah, or, oh, yeah. yeah. We can't give up too quickly. Uh, yes. We're in the trough uh. of the of the J-curve. <laughs> <laughs> so in the last month's CPI report, men's suits, deflation, okay. negative 4% year over year. Interesting. Be- people just aren't wearing suits anymore, I guess. Or maybe they're getting the synthetic polyester suits instead. That could be maybe the cheap, cheaper manufacturer. So we had a, a work event this past week, a client event, client appreciation event, and it came up what is business business professional dress yes that was the stated yes we were asked to dress business professional there's a lot of discrepancy over and everyone seemed to was. have their own interpretation of business professional yes i interpreted business professional as slacks button down short shirt sport coat yep some others took it as polo slacks which very aggressive on on that side i didn't see anyone in the tie so it started this conversation of what are the stages of business dress now since COVID? I think that's the second to highest step, right? Like business formal. I'd say business formal is suit, suit tie. Full suit and tie. Yes. I think, I agree. I think business professional, you have to be wearing a jacket of some sort. Yes. Business casual, polo, polo down to a polo. Yes. 
and then that's it, right? Those that's are the three stages. Those are the three stages. Unless <laughs> <laughs> we go business informal, which I guess would be a company picnic. The, yeah, the sure. Shorts, shorts and polo. Wear clothes. Yeah, yeah. we act like it's a normal day. Yeah. But I don't know. I wonder if COVID's reset that, though. Maybe we need to – I'm sure someone has some article on something. Probably. I'm if sure you know – There was probably a time where business professional was suit tie. The top and, hat. And, like, and, you know, back in the day. And, and business casual was sport coat. Yeah. But so. – I don't know. We're not there anymore. We're on the performance fabrics, making suits <laughs> out of performance fabrics. I was shocked that you knew this next story, Sean. I never heard it before. It is, well, I guess today is, or recording this episode is, Fat Bear Tuesday. Sure is. The finalists are in. It is Chunk versus Grazer. And if you have no idea what we're talking about, Sean will explain it because he's the... <laughs> "Quote unquote expert in this category." I would call myself an extra. I, I remember this, the most informed. Okay, I remember this being a big deal last year. So there's a national park, Katmai National Park in Alaska, and they each year in October have Fat Bear Week, culminating in Fat Bear Tuesday, where they do a March Madness style bracket, and each day have people vote on their favorite of two fat bears, like right before hibernation right when bears are at their fattest this is one of the strangest brackets i've ever seen (laughs) and their goal is each year to raise money for the otis fund which i guess goes towards conservation helping the park education all those things their goal this year is to raise three hundred thousand. they've raised about one hundred thirty thousand so far but fundraiser runs through the 14th however the the fat bear bracket ends today and like you said the championship is between two bears chunk a male with a distinctive scar on his nose in Grazer, a female with distinctive bright blonde ears. I think I think guess all the bears are given a number. So their full names are thirty two chunk and one twenty eight grazer. <laughs> Sounds like like pre snap uh Audible at it the <laughs> Was it Reuters or Associated Press that we found this in? Associated Press, right? They had mentioned last year over a million votes were cast for people's people's favorite fat bear and i cast my vote today i voted for grazer did you vote I've, i have not voted though i feel like i should now you got to and i think every vote as well uh organization pledged to to donate i think it was 50 cents per per vote up to a hundred thousand dollars it is a very creative way to raise awareness and money for a very important part of alaska's economy yes alaska Known for its unique combination of mountains, glaciers, and wildlife, tourism is Alaska's second largest employer, and more than half of visitors to Alaska have initially come by cruise, yep. which I thought was kind of an interesting, interesting stat there. But right now in Alaska, the unemployment rate is 3.9%, which is near its lowest ever. That's great. That's crazy. And it, I'd say it's the lowest ever unemployment rates have come within the past few years. And this goes all the way back to 1979, which is the first year we can get data in Y charts. It's usually somewhere more hovering around mid single digits in alaska so uh, interesting and creative way to raise awareness for a very important part of their economy yeah absolutely and and maybe more anecdotal than anything it feels like just these past few years that alaskan tourism boom has continued i feel like i know a lot of people who have done those alaskan cruises raise rave about it maybe not katmai but different national parks up there that i know people have gone to so i know definitely it's a, something i'm interested in doing. a bucket list yeah. travel place for sure so and maybe when you're up there you can see chunk or grazer what a time meet some celebrities <laughs> so i hope i never actually bump into them yeah 
Uh, parting thoughts, Sean? We'll see what we get from CPI later this week. Hopefully a benign number. That'll shake, shake markets too much. Hopefully treasury yields. Yeah. Don't don't want a surprise like we had in the, the labor market report last week. No, no. Much more damaging it would be to see a surprise here. So hopefully that's normal. Hopefully yields start to stabilize. We've got some green across the different indices in the stock market today. So hopefully we can can build some momentum back up after a tough September. Well said. Not much to add there. (laughs) Really just waiting for November 1st at this point. Wait, see what Fed messaging um, is. Sounds good. All right, Sean. Then until next time. Until next time. Go Phils. Go Phils.